0: BirdNote presents. Hey there, I'm Ari Daniel, and this is Threatened, a new show from BirdNote about answering the call to protect the birds and places we love. This is the final episode of our pilot season, and we're ending our journey in one of the most important bird habitats in the Western Hemisphere, the boreal forest. Billions of birds nest and hatch their eggs here. The Boreal is also the ancestral home of the Lutsulke Dene First Nation, who've spent decades trying to preserve the land on their terms. Their solution could well provide a blueprint for sustainable conservation around the world. Let's get started. Iris Catholic has always had a strong sense of herself.
1: When I was growing up as a child, girls were not allowed to do a lot of things. Uh, there was a lot of taboos. Girls can't do this, girls can't do that. I just didn't agree with it.
2: I'd raised her the opposite of being restrained and to let her flourish.
0: Florence Catholic is Iris's mom.
2: I had grandmothers that took on the role of hunting and trapping and fishing. You know, I was so headstrong that,
1: you know, like I saw some of my aunties who used to, you know, live out in the barren lands and say, well, if they can do that, how come I can't do that?
0: Iris and Florence belong to the Lutsulke Dene First Nation people of the Northwest Territories in Canada.
2: There's no differentiating between the role of a man and a woman in
0: my culture Or at least that's how it used to be, a culture of hunting and harvesting that men and women participated in equally.
1: My grandfather, his name was Jonas Catholic. Boys and girls in his generation, there was no shortage of work. Everything was hard. They had to live off the land. There was no store when they were growing up. They had to go and harvest their food. They had to do everything on their own. So everybody had to pitch in. Like my grandfather used to work on hides with my grandmother right up until he passed away. I, I was very close with him, and uh, I just told him, I was like, ba, I want to learn how to do this. I want to learn how to do that. He said, okay, my girl, I'm going to teach you everything you want to know because, he said, that's how I was raised.
0: So I was taught how to be a hunter at a very young age. A deep affection grew inside of Iris for the land and water of her ancestors.
1: Litzlakea is actually situated on the furthest most eastern tip, of the Great Slave Lake.
0: It's a very big lake. The Great Slave Lake, named after the Slavey First Nations people, is the 10th biggest in the world and the deepest in North America. Every August, nearly half the Lutsuke Dene community, somewhere between 60 and 80 people, take their boats onto the lake and travel to a remote and sacred patch of land for a spiritual gathering. That's how I kind of learned how to navigate the lake
3: and learn how to drive a boat on the lake, right? Because I've been going there ever since I was young. Shanto Catholic is
0: Iris' cousin.
3: So people go there and pray that your family will do good, that the community will do good. They sing songs. Songs that
0: people have been playing forever, right? Pray to the Lady of the Falls spirit visit the Dene people who are buried there and ground themselves in their surroundings.
3: It's just, the water is clear. That's like our holy water to our people. The land is just so untouched,
0: right? After you leave, you just feel so rejuvenated. The Lutsoke Dene are on the water all the time. Take Iris, here she is in the early fall, revving up her 18-foot fishing boat and motoring into the great slave lake.
1: Our water is so clear and so pure that you could take a cup right out of your boat and you can just drink it. Like, it doesn't need to be filtered. There's no contaminants in it whatsoever.
0: And if you look at an aerial map of this part of the Northwest Territories, it's just freckled with lakes.
1: Yeah, we've got a lot of wetlands in our area. There's an abundance of wildlife and fish and birds.
3: I really enjoy the springtime because it's like everything migrates. So you'll have the geese flying white-crowned sparrows chirping in the mornings. Once you walk into a patch of willows, you'll start seeing yellow warblers. You go by the river, you'll see two osprey nests, eagles soaring. I saw a merlin the other day. It was pretty cool. Once you just really start looking and listening, right? Like, it's just so diverse. Well, to be honest, like they're like Pokemon.
0: (laughs) You got to identify them all. Lutzoke, the Great Slave Lake, this whole area is part of a biome called the Boreal Forest. Stretching from interior Alaska eastwards across Canada through the Northwest Territories. Kind of
4: sandwiched in between the Arctic and the prairies all
0: the way to Newfoundland and Labrador on the Atlantic coast says Jeff Wells vice president of boreal conservation for the National Audubon Society
4: so you know a very vast area it's about 1.5 billion acres in size and it is one of the most intact forest landscapes left on earth about eighty percent intact virtually no sort of footprint of industrial development so because of that it's been able to support an incredible number of birds and diversity of birds there's over 300 species that nest in the boreal and we estimate that there's one to three billion with a bee that nest there every year um, and then in the fall, at the end of the nesting season, when you add in the young of the year, there's 3 to 5 billion that go spilling out across the Canada-U.S. border, um, moving south starting even in July and extending through November. And on average, that means there's something like 30 to 50 million birds that have to pass over that border every every night. So this sea of birds comes spilling out of the boreal night after night as these birds come to become the familiar birds for the backyards and gardens and parks and forests and wetlands of the U.S. and in point south all the way down into southern South America for some of them.
0: That's such a beautiful image. You know, I kind of imagine this giant river of birds just sort of pouring southwards.
4: Yeah, you can name all the great places for birding around the country. What makes those places so special is the abundance of birds passing through and so much of that abundance is actually coming from an intact forest to their north that produces all these birds and sends them down to the US each fall. It's the key place that allows birds to make more of themselves and be resilient enough to survive all the perturbations and threats and issues that they're going to be dealing with on migration and in winter um, and increasingly with climate change, you know, which will cause many of them to die, you know, that's the truth of it and so Maintaining places where they can successfully nest and breed and raise young without all of these other impacts is key to not only their survival, but, you know, the health of our entire world.
0: And by that, Jeff means these birds play a variety of important ecological roles across the hemisphere, like dispersing seeds and pollinating plants. Indeed some of these birds, like the Cape May Warbler or the Bay-Breasted Warbler, can be found well south of the boreal, with their faces just dusted in pollen. And when you think about the sheer number of birds performing these tasks, the benefits are enormous to forests and habitats throughout the Americas. Iris Catholic says the birds are like messengers. They
1: they tell us
0: things, for instance, like the snowbirds. We know for sure, as soon as the snowbirds
1: get here, the, the snow is coming. <laughs> uh, like if you're out fishing and you have a couple eagles in the area and they're swooping down and they're catching fish. That's where you want to go fishing, because the eagles are there.
3: Once springtime comes, means that geese are coming, ducks are coming, they're coming up to nest. They're really like kind of the
4: first indicators. Season's changing, weather's warming up. One of the last places on earth where there are still great mammal migrations is within the boreal forest of Canada with caribou that make these, you know, massive migrations. And then the herds of caribou have wolves that follow them, certain lineages of wolves that move with the caribou herds. You know, there's also the migration of fish to go a thousand kilometers up a river to spawn, as they always did for millennia. The boreal, it has one of the largest overall stores of carbon of any land-based part of the earth. It's been pulled out of the air, sequestered by the trees and other plants, and peatlands. And then because of the very cold environment, it stays there, kind of locked in, in storage for thousands and thousands of years. So vitally important in the whole climate change equation.
0: Jeff says the only long undammed rivers left in North America course through the boreal. Think Mississippi River in scale, but nothing to get in their way. That water influences ocean nutrients and food webs, ice formation in the Arctic, ocean circulation patterns, and planet-wide weather systems.
4: There's a global reach to everything in the boreal, and maintaining that intactness is so crucial.
0: To
1: keep this little section of land protected is so important. And uh, our elders have always said, you know, in order to keep our land and water pristine, we need to protect it by establishing a park for all of our future generations for young people so they can enjoy it and the rest of the world can enjoy it. You know, when the elders say you need to do this type of work, you listen.
0: But it was going to be a tough road. Creating some type of protected area meant coordinating with the Canadian government, an undertaking that would require a reckoning with the past.
1: We we don't trust the government, (laughs) you know. There's a lot of promises that are made by the federal government to our people, you know, 120 years ago that are still not being honored. Um, So you know, like that always sticks in the back of your mind, and if anybody knows anything, is like you you don't make decisions
2: overnight. I don't think that anyone in their right mind...
0: Florence Catholic again.
2: Especially Indigenous people who put their trust in
0: the government. Iris and Florence have good reason to distrust the government. For instance, you know how Iris was told she couldn't hunt and fish?
1: You know, in my generation, there's not too many women like that. Probably just a couple of us that can navigate and travel on the land and harvest and hunt and, you know, survive on our own if we had to. So there's a lot of taboos that we're still trying to get
0: over. Taboos introduced by the West, the Canadian Crown Government
1: that colonialistic mentality that like you have to do it this way or you have to do it that way
0: one of the most painful ways that indigenous communities across Canada including the K'e Dene have felt that colonial influence has been through residential schools
1: while well, you're uprooted from your family you're moved to a different place yeah it was great to get an education however like you don't you don't have your your mother your father your brother your sister around You know, you don't have that family
0: support. Residential schools operated from the early 1830s to the mid-1990s, and their goal was nothing short of the wholesale assimilation of First Nations people. Their full intent was to kill the Indian in them a cultural genocide. This is Stephen Nita. He says that in Canada's early days, there was a dependence of Western settlers on indigenous peoples for their survival, a recognition of indigenous sovereignty, and a relatively peaceful coexistence. But that changed starting in the early 1900s.
5: Canada focused on indigenous peoples with the sole purpose of uh, eradicating them. Kids were totally indoctrinated to hate themselves, hate their parents, hate who they are. That was the uh, assimilation policy. It took a while for Canada to come around to our community, mainly because of our isolation. But eventually, you know, when they did get to us, they certainly got to us. My mother, who's 80 now, everyone of her generation were scooped up in placed place in residential schools. The relationship my mother has with me and, and my grandparents uh, were, was altered forever. The relationship she had with the land was altered forever. It was a systematic erasure of that relationship that, uh, that Canada used
0: right across the country. Roughly 150,000 children were relocated away from their families, including Iris. For me, it was grade 10 to 12. Iris's grandmother and her mother. Can you tell me about your experience with them, Florence? That's too close to the heart
2: to speak of.
0: Mm. I just want to make sure I have a sense. It sounds like you feel like maybe they they robbed you of something, that they took something from you.
2: Yes, of course they did. You know the the way to get rid of a society is to to take you away from it and to take you away from where you're from and from all the teachings and the teachers, which are usually your parents or your grandparents or your relatives, that have all the knowledge of how they traveled and survived on the land, the history that links to our community, the connection to the spiritual, those are all lost. We were prohibited from doing a lot of things Sometimes we seem to be like in an ocean, just a little grain of salt, trying to regroup and find each other and, and get our way of living back. It's a really hard subject for me to speak of.
0: Hmm. So it was in the wake of this painful history that Iris resisted and learned the ways of her people, but any sort of protected area would have to wrestle with this past, all while trying to imagine a different kind of future. The first attempt was made in the late 60s. Shannon McDonald is the senior negotiator for Parks Canada's Protected Areas Establishment Branch.
6: These very well-positioned politicians that are fairly storied in Canadian history came in to the community and said, hey, we're going to make a national park here, just kind of sign on the line. And the response from the Let's Okay, Danny First Nation was, uh, oh no, <laughs> oh no you're not. <laughs> At that
5: time, my grandparents, great-grandparents, the elders, were dead set against a national park. National parks has a dark history. Uh, national parks were used as a tool of assimilation, so they wanted nothing to do with that.
6: The Government of Canada did go away. And didn't create a national park. So, you know, I do want to give those older white guys some credit on that one.
0: (laughs) But a few decades later, in the early 1990s, a force had arisen that placed this area in real jeopardy.
7: At the time, the Northwest Territories was the center of one of the largest prospecting rushes in history.
0: Larry Innes is a lawyer with a firm that represents First Nations communities across Canada. Diamond miners from around the
7: world were flying across the tundra, staking claims and looking for uh, the next big diamond discovery in the north. People were seeing helicopters, you know, literally landing in their backyards.
6: Throwing darts out of planes to mark territories. What happened was a real concern about the loss of the Little Caydena way of life, impacts on caribou migration, and preserving access to lands for future settlement, all of those things.
5: Our people, they decided that uh, we needed to protect the heart of our homeland, the huge, huge homeland. The most important lesson is if you take care of the land, the land will take care of you.
0: We have a relationship with and a responsibility to nature uh, in all its forms. By this point, it was the late 90s, and the Canadian government had changed some of its policies around national parks, making them more appealing to First Nations communities like the Lutsulke Dene, such as allowing traditional practices like hunting and fishing and woodcutting within the boundaries of a park, or granting indigenous access to the lands and waterways that had always been theirs, even after they became protected. And so
6: it was Lutzelke Dene First Nation that came back to the government of Canada and said, we want this area protected for future generations. Let's sit down and talk about how we can do this together.
7: And the government agreed. And the role of Indigenous governments as self-governments would be respected.
0: So in 2005, the Lutzelke Dene people and the government of Canada sat down to begin talking in earnest. Among the folks involved were Stephen Nita, Larry Innes, Shanna McDonald from Parks Canada, even Iris Catholic to an extent.
1: I wasn't a negotiator per se, but it's very important for me to be involved with anything that has to do with our territory. Attending all of the public meetings, doing interviews with the negotiators, talking to elders and the community as a whole.
0: The talks began, but right out of the gate, complications arose.
1: Well, there was a lot
6: of concern.
0: We were close and then we weren't.
6: There were a number of things that delayed the process.
0: Some procedural, some foundational.
6: Probably
1: the biggest hurdle was making sure that those traditional hunting and harvesting rights were still protected.
0: It took years of hammering out elements big and small and sending drafts back and forth. But by early 2019, at last an end was in sight
1: probably took a good 10 years for me to find and say, okay, I agree.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. What convinced you that your interests were going to be respected?
1: It came to a point where there was everything in that agreement. Our treaty rights are going to be honored. Our harvesting rights are going to be honored. We are still going to be able to live and, and practice our Denny way of life. So it it just ended up to be something that was, you know, a living record of exactly how we felt. Yeah, it, it took a while, but we got there. We were
6: able to then move forward on a cooperative management model.
7: Where we share jurisdictions and where we respect each other's rights and each other's responsibilities.
6: It was a real breakthrough to say we all have come into this with our own authorities. Some of it is invested in us by the government of Canada through legislation and... And some of it is invested in people and through the creator. And we have to respect both of those lines of authorities.
0: In mid August 2019, it became official. So now we have a park. <laughs> the creation of the Thai Dinanina Indigenous Protected Area, Shanto Catholic.
3: So Thai means the land of the ancestors, elders, like. Old timers, that's what they always call this land, was Taiten and Like my, my grandfather traveled all over this land. My great grandfather traveled over this land. My great great grandfather traveled all over this land, right? My family ties are to this land, the land of the ancestors.
0: Over 10,000 square miles of land and water is now protected by a trilateral agreement between the Lutsulke Dene First Nation, Parks Canada, and the government of Northwest Territories.
7: It's a jointly designated national park, territorial park, and indigenous protected area where each government makes decisions and seeks consensus with the others before those decisions are actually made on the ground.
5: We didn't give our rights to it away. We didn't give our responsibilities to the lands away. Uh, What we agreed was to share.
6: There are pictures of me walking around with the signed agreement clutched to my chest like a, a little baby bird, and I was never going to let it go. To see the the joy in the community, the celebration, it was really powerful.
3: I mean, it's a big thing, right? It's it's scary to sign on and to be in partnership, but you kind of have to go into these kind of things with an open heart and like an open mind that we have to all work together to protect the land. Healing takes time.
5: Well, there's uh, mixed bags of emotions, sad emotions, uh, for the fact that the elders that put us on this road and guided us were 80% were not alive to witness it. There's excitement, knowing that our relationship with those lands and waters and the animals will continue, which gives us a, a real good chance of continuing to be Dene and contributing to the mosaic of the human family and a little bit of fear. We're committing our people to a lifelong relationship with Parks Canada and the Government of Northwest Territories. We've provided the conditions for success, but uh, only time will tell.
0: Iris now runs Thaidenanina on the Lutzoke Dene side of things. She has a small staff, and her responsibilities include managing the Nihatne Dene Guardian Program, which means Watchers of the Land.
1: Okay, so the Nihatne Dene are our go-to guardians for monitoring and helping folks that come into Thaidenanina understand what our rules and regulations are. These are Daniel laws, and this is what you need to know.
0: Like making sure that people entering the protected area know where the sacred areas are, and that there's a moratorium on hunting caribou since the population's in decline. They monitor the water, the ice and snow, the fish, and the birds.
1: You know, the health of the birds is quite important with climate change and things of that nature. You know, are the seasons coming or going faster or slower?
0: The Guardians have installed automated song recorders that capture the sounds of birds like this American robin. This information fills in gaps in our understanding of which birds appear where throughout the year. And while not everyone's fully convinced that this experiment in co-management between indigenous and crown governments will be successful, many are excited by what this new model represents.
1: We're showing the rest of the world that, yes, you know, if you want to protect your lands, your water, your wildlife, your birds, your ducks, like essentially where you come from, that is achievable.
7: And it's through that process that we're starting to see the shift from what was previously a colonial approach in which rights were denied to a post-colonial approach in which Indigenous rights are recognized as the foundation for conservation. And that's a huge change.
4: One of these best-kept secrets of bird conservation is that these indigenous governments and communities and leaders are protecting more birds than you know just about anywhere else in the world.
0: This is Jeff Wells again from the National Audubon Society.
4: We can thank those indigenous leaders and their visions for a positive future for all those birds that are of the fabric of our backyards and parks and gardens. It's really gonna be the future of making sure we have safe, healthy places for birds and people and, and wildlife and plants and everything.
5: The exciting thing here is that we can show how Indigenous knowledge systems, understanding of the environment, and Indigenous laws can influence and impact an area of this size that I think there's
0: a knowledge system that's greatly needed globally. Is there a part of you that feels kind of frustrated that after so many years of mistreatment that now it's like we don't have our act together so we have to rely on groups like the K and others to help get us out? Or do you have a more charitable view of, of all of this? Well, it depends on the day
5: <laughs> <laughs> and the challenges of that day. But it's all about relationships. I think indigenous people have demonstrated they are willing to to forgive but not forget and move forward. I think the goodwill that indigenous people are demonstrating has to be reciprocated and non-indigenous people have to understand learn the history the real history of the Americas.
0: As for Iris Catholic, her personal history has become intertwined with Thai Dinanina Back when the idea for such a place was first being imagined, she was a girl falling in love with the land.
1: Just just being out on the land, for me, it's a big part of my life.
0: Once the negotiations for a protected area began in earnest, she got involved out of a deep affection for this vast home of hers. And then, as those deliberations neared their final stretch, she was diagnosed with breast cancer.
1: It was uh, It was a very hard time in my life. You don't feel the greatest after having to go through certain treatments, but yeah, just being able to to know that I can walk out my door and within 5 minutes I can be in the wilderness. It's like a healing thing for for me because you always feel stronger and you always feel rejuvenated after being out on the land. It's just a part of like I guess part of who I am.
0: Fortunately, Iris's cancer is now in remission. And what an amazing thing on the other end of your recovery to come out and have this enormous area protected, something that's so dear to you.
1: Yep. We're going to teach our young people to be strong and to be able to walk in both worlds, to be able to have an academic background, but yet to also have the ability to know what it is to be a Dene person, to be able to harvest, to take care of your family, to have all of those Dene values. So I think our future generations, I think they're going to be benefiting from, I guess, a lot of the work that their parents and, you know, our grandparents have done trying to protect our people.
0: Iris sees herself as one link in a long chain extending ahead of her and behind her, a chain passing through the heart of a special place in Canada, a place called Thy Dina Thanks for joining us for this season of Threatened. If you want to learn more about the Boreal Forest and the Dinanina Indigenous Protected Area, visit birdnote.org and check out our show notes. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to Threaten now so you don't miss our next season. You can also give us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find us. You don't have to wait until next season for more stories about birds. Birdnote's flagship program brings you a dose of joy and inspiration with two-minute episodes every single day on the Birdnote podcast, online, and on over two hundred public radio stations. And be sure to check out the migrations podcast for stories of the epic journeys that birds make and what we humans can learn from them. This six-episode limited-run podcast, hosted by Ambar Espinosa, is launching on February 23rd. Follow BirdNote on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to keep up with all of our productions. BirdNote is an independent nonprofit public media organization. If you like what you hear, support our programming. Visit our website birdnote.org and click the donate button. This episode was produced by me, Ari Daniel, with editorial help from Allison Wilson. The rest of the Birdnote team is Sally Bodie, Mark Bramhill, John Kessler, Ellen Blackstone, Sam Johnson, Shelley Ellison, Jason McHugh, Katie Meyer, Jessica Rue France, and Roderick Campbell. Our science advisors on Threatened are Megan Friesen, Niels Warnock, and Trina Baird. The artwork for the season was created by Clint McMillan of Brain Cloud Design, music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next season with more stories about the enduring connections between birds, people, and landscapes.